I, it's hard for me to describe, and I know the first night that I was speaking here, I did speak, I believe it was the first night, about what Swami's music means in terms of a much bigger picture. I, I naturally feel Swamiji's very happy with the way everything is developing in India. He certainly devoted tremendous amount of his own energy to make it happen. But somehow I think what if he's watching you sing those songs, and I can't exactly explain it, but it feels to me like a turning point. Um, because the songs are not, um, they're not entirely natural to any of you who are singing them or any of you who are listening to them. It's because it's not merely that it's not uh, in traditional Indian uh, devotional singing. It's the fact that those songs are not anybody's. That there's no precedent for that music. I mean, you can see people play guitars, people sing, people sing harmony. If you look on the surface of it, it's easy to see where it matches. It's not, it's not a radical form. You know, there have been uh, musicians who've tried to make the form radical. Someone was telling me about some of the preposterous things that happen in the name of art, including a, a, a piano concerto where the pianist literally, this I'm told this, he literally walks out, he hits one note, then he sits there for about 30 minutes and everybody he sits in, in silence and then he hits another note and walks off the stage just sort of some musician trying to be far out with music and show that music is silence And so there's radical things you can do like that and this is not radical in that sense it's a conventional sequence of notes and so on but Swamiji himself talked often he was always trying to get us to understand what it was that we were actually involved with in being disciples of Yogananda, of being disciples of this path at this particular time. And it, it, it's natural for people to see things in personal terms. You know, you think of, Yog of Yoganandaji being the guru or Babaji being the guru, um, Jesus being the guru, people in America sometimes who were devoted to Jesus would come in with this great devotion to Jesus and then they'd feel a conflict about having to take discipleship to Yogananda or, or Jewish people would come in and they would want to be Yogananda's disciple but they would be confused by the presence of Christ or people like myself would come in with devotion to Swami Kriyananda and not quite knowing what to do with everybody else. And Swamiji was always trying to get us to understand that the personification that we see through all these individuals, including himself, was of a what he called a particular ray of grace, which is just a very interesting way to say it. And he was constantly trying to get us to impersonalize the whole experience, not to be less loving or less devoted, but to understand more clearly what we are devoted to. Um, there was a man named Gary Goldschneider who, he's still living. I think he's subsequently become an astrologer instead of a musician. But when I knew him, he was a very good musician. He was the kind of person, whatever he set his mind to, he became excellent at. He had five children and he couldn't pay for their lives with the piano. So I think he turned to astrology because he could pay for their lives more readily that way. But he was a superb musician on a very high level.
and he lived locally near Ananda village, and he and Swami Kriyananda became friends, and they could talk about music on a level of refinement that most of the rest of us couldn't touch, just because they both operated on a very refined plane. And so others of us would enjoy listening to them, but seldom could contribute much. And once Gary was talking to Swami, he was trying to make some point, and he just found that words were completely inadequate to say what he wanted to say. And there in Swami's living room was a, was a, is a baby grand piano that actually had belonged to his mother, and she gave it to him. And Gary just sort of popped up from his seat on the couch and rushed over to the piano and put his hands on the keys and demonstrated whatever it was he was trying to say in words. And I, sitting there just watching the experience, it was the most profound sense of the fact that the music was already in the room. And when Gary put his hands on the piano keys, it wasn't that he created it. It was like he opened the window. And then he opened the window, the music just flooded into the room, and when he was finished, he lifted his hands from the piano, and then the window closed. But it didn't go away. It's just it became inaudible to the rest of us. I felt like Gary could still hear it. It was playing just as much. On another occasion when he gave a concert, on another occasion when he gave a concert, afterwards I spoke to him and I thanked him for the beautiful music. I just spoke about the music he played. And he looked at me gratefully and he said, it's such a relief to have someone compliment the music. He said, usually they compliment the pianist. And, I mean, it, thinking from his point of view, because that is how he felt, all he did was open a window. And it seemed absurd to compliment the person who opened the window because it was what came through the window that was really giving us the experience. I mean, this is an indication of his humility also. So Swami Kriyananda, in, in his life entirely, and we're talking specifically about music, but it, in his entire life, he was what you would call a very creative person. And at one point, there was a man in the community who was a very gifted musician himself, beautiful singing voice. He also happened to be musically educated, which not all of the people at Ananda are. Some are just natural musicians without training. He was both. But he also had this... Um, uh, he, he, wasn't com he wasn't completely comfortable in himself, this man, and so he was always a little concerned about being affirmed personally. And he was also creative. He wrote songs, very, some of them quite nice. And he was, he was trying to persuade Swamiji that it was the right thing for him to leave our ashram and go out and try to make his way as a musician in the world to write his own songs, to do his own music. And Swamiji tried to persuade him in this way. He said, if you stay here and sing the music that I've written, he said, you'll get deeply, more deeply in tune. And when you get more deeply in tune, you'll also be more in tune, in tune with this ray of grace. And when you get in tune with a particular ray of grace, especially if it's your, your ray of grace, then what you do is you get closer to, you, to our, we get closer to our own center. This is the 
confusing paradox of the spiritual path is that there appears to be something that we're trying to become, but actually what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to release all that that we have been holding onto that we think of as ourselves. And as we get more in tune, we just let all that go. All the insecurities, all the self-definitions, all the limiting ideas of, of our cultural or whatever our identity might be. And we, become, we, we begin to relax. All that effort to hold up this egoic facade is actually quite exhausting to us. And when we realize that we don't need to, that we don't need to maintain this separate reality, that in fact if we just relax we actually sink into a truer, stronger reality, we go, as Swami put it, more to our point of origin, which is divinity, which is our attunement with God. And then Swami talked about our creative efforts. He said true creativity is not to do what's never been done before. So here's this musician who has the pianist just walk out and hit one note. This composer hits one note and he sits there for half an hour because nobody's ever done this before. So this is original kind of music or cacophonous sounds or just ludicrous things that they have to do sometimes in the name of art in the really extreme avant-garde worlds. He said, to be, to be creative is not to do something that's never been done to be before. He said, to be original is not to do something that's never been done before. It's to act from our own point of origin. And when we act from our own point of origin, then everything that we do is unique because each of us has our own unique starting point. The example that Swami would often give is the words, I love you. He said there's hardly any phrase that is more cliche than that phrase. And of course people write poetry and they write songs and they try to find other ways to say it. But just those words, I love you, when they're spoken with absolute sincerity from a person's point of origin, have a magnificent power to them. And they always sound creative and original because it's a completely sincere expression. And all the words in the world that don't come from that point of origin don't have any power, magnetism, or art to it. So Swami was trying to explain to this man, and, and Swami was talking to me about it later, he said it's his, the phrase Swami would use, and he always used this when talking about his music, he always would say, it's a bit awkward he said, because I am the composer. And so it's a bit awkward for he himself to tout the value of the music that he has apparently composed. Because he was asked once by a reporter, he said, the reporter asked him, what's your favorite music? Swami said, mine, just like that. <laughs> and he said, only later did he realize what that sounded like. You know, because he didn't really think of it as mine. He felt it was the music that came through him. He felt it was given to him by God and Guru. And therefore it was completely harmonious with his own spiritual reality. He said the question wasn't what is the best music. If it, they had asked what the best music is, he, you know, the answer could have or would have been completely different. But his favorite 
was that which made him feel in tune with the spiritual ray that to whom he has given his life. So he's trying to tell this young man, basically, the words he used were, he said, what you're doing now is imitative, he said. It's not really original. Yes, the melodies might not have been done before. You've written words that haven't been spoken. But you're imitating what's around you. And this is what, what, what most of us do in our whole lives. We just imitate what's around us. I remember when I was about 15, and I, I was, uh, I think at that time, the, the beatniks of all things were just starting. It was before the hippies. And I learned the word bohemian, which I had not learned before, which sort of meant a little outside of the norm. And I, I didn't want to just conform in the way I looked and the way I dressed and so on. But I hadn't, there weren't a lot of secondhand stores and I, I just, it, I didn't know what to do and I realized everybody looked and made an appearance the way everybody thought they would look. You know, nobody walks around in the fashions of the 1400s, you know, or dress like Jesus from biblical times according to our imagination of what he might have looked like. We all look essentially like we look. I come back to India every few years and I'm amazed. I mean, now everything is changing, but I'm amazed how the kurta pajama can just keep shifting and shifting and shifting. <laughs> you know, women being women, you've got the same basic pattern, but the pants are shorter, the skirts are wider, the sleeves are longer. And I personally, I love all that. So I'm just delighted to see it. But I also rebel against it. I rebel against the fact in America the Sometimes the fashions get really strange. And the weirdest thing about it, and I'm just talking to the women, you all know this, I don't know how extreme it is here, but in my world, when some of the fashions first start, you can tell that they're ugly. <laughs> but then after a year or so, you forget that they're ugly. <laughs> For a period of time, women in America were wearing these big, heavy black shoes. They were horrid. And I knew they were horrid. For about 15 months, I knew they were horrid. And then I was in a bookstore, a shoe store, and I actually picked up a pair, and I heard myself say, these are cute, like that. And I thought, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> They're not. They're horrid. But I had just begun to absorb it and become imitative. This is basically, this is the great bane for the devotee, it doesn't matter how you dress. You know, fashion is just fun. It doesn't, it's not a big deal. Although I must say, Swamiji once said, to always keep up with the fashion is to show a singular lack of personal taste. That's how he put it. <laughs> Meaning that one is not moving from originality. Now, again, these are trivial, so please don't think that these things are important. Swami, to a certain extent, simply froze in terms of what we should look like. He sort of froze at... at, at in his era. So, like, no one, we all seldom wore um, denim around him. We almost never wore jeans, which he called dungarees, and he thought were suitable only for farm work. And he couldn't understand how you could actually go out anywhere in, uh, in jeans. It just seemed, so most of us never wore jeans around him. He even had a little trouble understanding women wearing pants, not Indian clothes, but just women wearing pants. So many of us, you know, just dressed in skirts when we were with him because that was his view and I felt that I would I felt if I was going to please anyone on the planet I might as well please him why should I please 
some magazine article or some memory of when I was in the eighth grade and that was what was attractive. I just, why not just align myself with his taste as much as anything else? It was all completely arbitrary anyway. So moving back, you know, to, to all of this and the question of originality and creativity, Swami was trying to explain to this man that at this point, and it wasn't just about his music, it didn't make any difference what kind of songs he wrote, it was that he himself had not gone deep enough into himself, and he said, if you sing this music that I have written, he said, and really learn it deeply, it will take you into attunement with the ray of grace that it expresses. And he described this music as a, a new vibration from, from, from the infinite that was trying to express itself as music. Isn't that, it's just so interesting because there's so many different ways in which we can find ourselves in attunement. It isn't just a question of the music. Although, as I say, when I watch you all sing it, and I've watched groups in Ajanic Puri and also in... Have they been singing in Gorgan? I don't think they have been. But I, it seems like I've seen three groups, but maybe it's just two. Noida, yes, that's where it was. They were singing in Noida. But what I'm watching, it's very interesting to me. I can feel what I'm watching is this tremendous, it's almost like a cosmic effort. It's like this cosmic effort to lift what we're all doing here into another realm of attunement in order to, be go, to go forward from this point. Um, as I may have expressed to you at the beginning when I first came uh, to India, when I first started coming to India to, 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 in this way. I came as a pilgrim for many years, and I bet I never took a role like this. Only after Swami came in 2003 and later did I start. And I, I've, I've explained to some of you who heard me say this. At first I was quite intimidated because there seemed to be so much more knowledge in the room than I had in myself of so many aspects of what I was just talking about a little bit. I would refer to the Ramayana or the Mahabharata, which are natural parts of my way of thinking. And either in class or after class, I would receive a scholarly lecture on points that I never even knew were there, what to speak of having any idea about them. Just yesterday in a taxi cab, talking to a Another friend, I was learning all sorts of things about the Bhagavad Gita that I had no idea about, and the Mahabharata too. So I felt very intimidated, made me very unsteady in my presentation. But then I remembered what Swamiji and Master and exchange they had in America when Swami was a young disciple. He asked Master, is what you have brought a new religion? And Master said, no, it's not a new religion. He said, it's a new expression, which is an interesting sort of subtle difference because there's no need to create a new religion. His mandate, Master said, from the, the, the Masters, the whole line of gurus, he was the last in the line of gurus that had sent a powerful force of grace onto this planet in order to begin a, a spiritual revolution. And the intention of that was the original teachings of Krishna, the original teachings of Christ, to, to take 
away all of the overgrowth of many centuries. You know, an old tree has many branches that needs to be pruned and many often vines and other things that have grown onto it. To prune the tree, go back to the root, and then show how that these teachings are and always have been the same. So that's the new expression. It's neither Christianity nor Hinduism. It's a new expression of the source of both of those. But that's a new ray of grace. And there's also the other part of it that Swamiji wrote in a little pamphlet he wrote about 1982. Then he called it a new dispensation. Master also described his path, this line, as a special dispensation. And I said to Swami, does that mean that people get more spiritually than they've actually earned? And Swamiji said he himself didn't quite know how to explain it, but that's what it sounds like. The way Swami described it in another place is that there's the, the, the sea of delusion is always roiling. You know, duality is always playing itself out. And he said, every so often, a large, calm area appears in the sea of maya. And that those who are drawn into that calm area have the capacity to go deeper because the turbulence ceases a little bit. I was talking yesterday and the day before to different people, and one man was saying to me, he's completely new to Ananda. He just showed up a couple of days ago. But he's already met a lot of you. And he just made the comment that everybody who's part of Ananda seems so nice. And Swamiji's explanation of that many years ago was he said, when you meet one or two people who seem to have a special quality to them, you will naturally think, oh, they're an exceptional person. But when you come into a community, or a sangha, and in America we have more established communities, where you see many, many people who are like that, he said, you have to say it's what they are doing. And that's where Swami talked about it being a special dispensation, where there's this power that is potentially ours. Now, none of this is sectarian. Swamiji has been quick to write his words are, I deplore sectarianism. It says sectarian is to say we're the only ones, you know, we're better than anyone, you must come with us. Not at all. It's sort of like saying everybody should marry my husband because he's the nicest man, or everybody should marry my wife because she's the most beautiful. It just doesn't make any sense to anyone. Because each of us has, uh, you know, you, you shouldn't have your children, you should just adopt mine. I mean, you can see how foolish it becomes. That's what sectarianism is. But Swami says it's not sectarian to declare the reality of what is simply in front of us. So when I'm standing in our temple, you know, talking to all of you, I can just say, this is what we have. And the reason it's important to understand is because otherwise we don't give our hearts to it with the clarity that um, will bring us the results that we want. And that's all that happens. It's not like God is insulted or will go to hell or something like that. It's that if we don't take advantage of what's in front of us, then less comes to us. And we get to suffer longer. It's really, nobody, nothing happens to anybody except to us. 
We cling to our delusions, as uh, one popular uh, author put it. He said, if you defend your delusions, the reward for that is you get to keep your delusions. And so it's like, it's really up to us. Do we really want to transcend our limitations or do we want to keep fighting for them so that we can continue to live confined and unhappy within them? It's entirely up to us. So coming all the way back still to this young man, Swami trying to persuade him, if you get more deeply in tune spiritually, then everything else you want will come back to you. In the Bible, the Christian Bible, um, at a certain point Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you, he says. It's a beautiful poetic phrase to say, if we first get in tune with God, then everything else that we think we want will come to us. Now, not every egoic desire will be fulfilled, but everything that we truly need will come to us. In the in Ananda, we have another phrase, which you may not look at first like it's completely parallel, but it is. We say, where there is dharma, there is victory. Swamiji said this was the motto of one of the Maharajas in India, and when he saw it, he, he adopted it for himself. Where there is dharma, there is victory, which is if we place our highest principles at the center of our lives, everything else will naturally follow. Not necessarily in the world's terms, but in the only terms that matter, which is for us. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all of this will be added unto you. So Swami's saying to this young man, I know that you have this ambition. And ambition is not in itself a wrong thing. It motivates us to put out energy and to overcome our limitations. But first take the music that has come through me, become deeply in tune with that, then you will be able from your origin point to write something else. Unfortunately, the man did not follow Swami's guidance and it did not work out well for him at all. That's just the way it is. Now that man is trying to make it up. He realizes that he made an error. He didn't know what he was doing at that time. Many years later, he's trying to make it up. But there it was there was because and but also the man then tried to defend himself by saying swamiji you know how it is you're a creative person you're an artist you know sometimes a, an artist just has to express himself and it was, swami's answer was extremely interesting he said no i don't understand that at all he said swami said i have never felt a need to express myself he said, why would I need to express myself? Now Swami's talking from a different level than most of us live. He said, I have only had one desire, and that is to serve, which is to help other people. So the prayer is not, how can I express myself? The prayer is, how can I serve? And it's, it's a wonderful way to come back around to actually the same reality. Because how can I help others? How can I use what God has given me? And if one actually prays that prayer with deep sincerity, how can I serve? It's, it's the same as where there is dharma, there is victory. 
Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Because what keeps us from being able to serve to our capacity is all of our delusions and all the things that we cling to. And so if we really want to serve, we have, we're forced to constantly to overcome those things. If we're short-tempered and hurt people's feelings by being too brusque, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, my reactivity uh, interrupts my ability to serve. If we know that we could help people with thoughts and ideas that we have, but we're habitually too shy to express ourselves or too afraid to put our energy out lest somebody's going to criticize us, then we see opportunities pass where people need what we know, but we don't have the capacity to offer it to them. If somebody needs a stern truth told to them, but we're too timid to ever risk anybody not liking us, then we see opportunities pass in which we're not able to serve. Swamiji talks about the whole realm of creativity itself simply being that simple question, how can I serve? And, and the, the constant desire to um, increase our ability to serve, to expand and improve our quality of service causes us constantly to be creative because we're looking at what we're doing and we're thinking a very simple question. How can I do this better? And Swami also talked about prosperity itself, he said, is the result of creativity. In the early years of Ananda when uh, we were always struggling for money and there were lots of, uh, what do you call them, prosperity teachings you know, how to be wealthy, and there was, there was just quite a number of them, and they were all kind of running through the world, the periphery of the world in which we lived. And people were more or less adopting different ones just in an effort. And Swamiji just said very simply, I, I said to Swamiji in the midst of that, I said, Swami, people are reading all these other books. I said, certainly within the heart of Master's teachings, we must have the principles of prosperity. He covered everything. Swami said, the secret of prosperity is creativity. Now, he didn't mean that we all become artists, you know, that we paint or we sing or whatever, because not everyone has that talent. He said, prosperity consciousness is the ability to believe that the solution is there, and if one thing doesn't work, I'll just try another. And if that one doesn't work, I'll try the next. And if that one doesn't work, I'll keep trying. That there's never an end to the possibilities until we finally find that way of being, that particular course of action, that business plan, that product, whatever it might be, that's actually going to give it success. Poverty consciousness, which was a phrase that was, of course, also there, was... He said, the lack of creativity, to imagine that if one solution doesn't work, that's the end. <laughs> that there are no alternatives. Just a complete lack of creativity. If this idea has failed, then I have failed. Rather than, okay, that didn't work, let me try again. Swamiji himself said he would lament the fact that sometimes he was just trying to get creative energy flowing and he would make a suggestion that we should try this, we should try that. 
And he said it was very discouraging to him when people would then say, Swami said to do this, when in fact, he said, you might have a better idea. I could have, he said, I could have suggested eight, and your ninth idea was better than mine. I was just trying to move the energy in a certain direction. So he talks about creativity also in that way, uh, coming back to the, art, the, the artistic and the music. He said, is that these... Uh, uh, these realities are already there. And what we're doing is by getting more deeply in tune with our actual origin point, it, it, it um, connects us basically to a higher strata of vibration and we can become a doorway for that. Gary Goldschneider was playing, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't playing music that he had written, he was playing he was especially uh, dedicated to Beethoven. He'd memorized all of Beethoven's piano music. He used to, just for fun, I'll tell you, he used to put a piano in the back of a truck, and then he would move that piano to some, some venue, either indoors or outdoors. And then for a period of like, I don't know, maybe whether it was days or how long it would take him, he would play the, the uh, not, not all, but maybe all, of the Beethoven piano repertoire. <laughs> and that would sort of be his concert. I mean, he was a radical thinker. He was trying to just really immerse people in it. But the way he sat down and opened the window to that music showed us what his relationship to creativity was, which is why when he changed professions, he suddenly became very good at that profession because he just knew how to open the window. And with Swamiji and his music, he said that's why the dif it's difficult for him. He always said... I didn't write this music. He always said, I received it. I heard it. Even literally, he would hear it. There's a beautiful song called To Death I'm No Stranger. Um, it might be a little challenging for our little choir yet because it's a bit of a subtle song even to sing. The words are subtle too. But it's this very haunting song about um, death coming early and the loss of, of all one's dreams, and then the realization that death is my friend, it's not a stranger, it's not taking it away. Beautiful song. And uh, we sang it, Swami wrote it, and then we sang it for a long time. And then after a couple of years, I don't think he said this early, he told us that in a dream, uh, he, a, a, a young man had come to him, and the man had, this is how Swami, I mean, I, I presume this is exactly what happened. This is how Swami described the dream. I mean, that it was super conscious. And it was a young man who had died in a concentration camp. He was either in his teens or barely out of his teens. And he died, and this was the song that had come to him before he died. And then he sang it for Swami. And then Swami wrote it, and we all sang it. He didn't tell us that for a long time. He just presented the song to us. I mean, and another, he, he heard a song. The song is called Mist. And he said, uh, I think it was a dream also. He said he saw a woman standing on a cliff just looking out over the ocean and she was singing this song. So he heard her sing it, so he wrote it down. Other songs come to him less, uh, less dramatically, but... For example, he wrote a whole oratorio about uh, the life of Christ after visiting the sites on pilgrimage. 
And he, again, he woke up with a song in his mind that was the melody that matched a place he'd been. And then he found that if he turned his mind to each of the places he's visited, each one spoke to him as a melody. And he describes music as a language as specific as any other language, he said, where every note actually says something. So it would be like the experience of a holy sight would translate itself into a melody. Now, you know, this is all very specific about creativity, which is important, but what we're really talking about is attunement. And what we're really talking about is to understand um, and to realize that we don't create our experiences and we don't create our spiritual progress. What we actually do is just open the window and allow the vibration which is already there to come into us. And now, and that's, that's, a, that's basically an artistic technique that can only be described, but it can't be learned except by going internally and trying to learn it. And coming back to where I started with the choir singing something that just seems like so much fun. If you're seeking freedom in a revolution, you know, you won't find it there. But one, there's a profound message in those words, which is delivered in such a way that we don't resist it. You know, very often if the message is brought to us in a way that makes us laugh or makes us smile, we don't resist it. Um, I think all of you probably know the super conscious living exercises where you march in place, I'm awake and ready, I'm awake and ready, I'm positive, energetic, enthusiastic, be glad, my brain, be wise and strong. You know, these are just like when Swamiji first taught us these things, it was in in the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco, which is an extremely elegant and prestigious venue, And he had some 500 people there, and we'd sort of worked up to this whole thing. And he has us, gets us all up out of our seats, and we all have to start going, I'm awake and ready. And believe me, you know, nobody was keen on doing it. It's about the only thing I can think of. Positive, energetic, enthusiastic. You know, people had come for something else. (laughs) But what I observed, and then after that, because I have often taught those is as soon as people start doing that first they're very embarrassed and they feel really really silly and then they they sort of blush and then they begin to look at each other and everybody else is doing it and then if I'm in the front I start urging them on and pointing out how limp and just pathetic they are at doing this you know because there's all this I'm afraid I'll look silly kind of energy like this But as soon as people actually really get into it, they begin to laugh, they begin to lighten up, they begin to lose all this uh, self-importance that keeps us from everything. And this whole other flow of energy begins to come in and we discover something about ourselves that we didn't know, something we need to know. I am awake and ready. I am positive and enthusiastic. You know, I want my brain to be glad and strong. Just these different realities, and and this is all the letting go. The letting go of this uh, false sense of importance, this false definition. 
and getting in tune with something much sweeter and much lighter. And the music, as I, I was saying, Swami said it's a physical manifestation. It's a physical manifestation in this world of a ray of grace. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's something really to grab a hold of, isn't it? And so it's not a matter of taste. It's a matter of vibration. And you know, Swami wrote 400 pieces of music. You don't have to love all of them. And you don't, I mean, I guess I'm urging you to immerse yourself in that music, but I'm most of all urging you to understand the principle that we are really working with a ray of grace. And all we're really trying to do as I was, I was starting to say a moment ago, we're trying to open the window to that. We don't have to persuade God to come and help us. It's, it's like we are, there's, there, there were cartoons when I was a child of what I guess you would call a diving bell. Is that, I mean, that's such old, such old technology. I don't even know if it exists. But there would be like a diving bell, like a bowl or a bell, and you'd have these cartoon characters would get in the little submarine thing, and then they would go down. And now in, in modern movies, there's, there's the genre of submarine adventure stories. And the submarine adventure stories, of course, they're way under the ocean, and sooner or later, the, there's a puncture. And as soon as there's a puncture, the ocean starts you know, trying to come in, and then there's a huge fight to try to keep the ocean out. But the dynamic of it is, and the dynamic in the cartoon too, the diving bell has to be really strong to hold this force away. And that's what our ego is. Our ego is this tremendous structure that we have built of of fear and self-importance and self-definition and all of these different things where it makes us so nervous and we're just using so much of our energy just to hold that intact. And meanwhile, divine grace is pressuring us. So much pressure. It's just trying to break through. There's a beautiful poem called The Hound of Heaven, which Master really loved. There's a recording somewhere of him saying it. And The Hound of Heaven was actually written, it wasn't written by Master. Uh, Lord, Lord, a young husband was his name. I don't, he was actually a, he was a, an aristocrat, but I believe the story is he was an opium addict. And as a consequence, he had a very conflicted life. He had a, an elevated side, and then he was also just trapped in this addiction he had. And he, he was always in a push-pull relationship to his higher self. So he wrote this poem about how he was always being pursued by this fierce creature that seemed to threaten his very existence. And he writes very, very poetically, very poetically about what it felt like to always feel that just right on the edge of his life there was this terrible fierce threat that was about to destroy him. And then he talks finally about, it tells finally about how he was finally just trapped in a corner, just collapsed in a corner. And what he's also describing is the the progress of his own addiction and how it gradually debilitated him and took away from him everything. And then he talks about how this, this shadow finally of this terrible hound 
just reaches out to him like this and he feels the darkness just overcoming him and then he realizes that it's the hand of God caressing him and that far from destroying him this this hound has been pursuing him to lift him up to the light instead of to push him into darkness now we're not necessarily all the time fighting for our egos like this trying to oppress the world some people are but they're not likely to be sitting in this room or listening to this talk we're just trying to find our way in this world and the the most powerful thing that we can begin to understand is how deeply and completely God is on our side and is trying to help us and that all we have to do is just keep opening ourselves to that a woman in our community had a very difficult decision to make it was a very either or decision there was no middle ground on it and she said I just keep praying to master but I don't get any answer and Swami said oh just do whatever you feel to do he said God master is pleased that you think to ask him and Swamiji said that he just makes it a habit of always consulting God in about about everything he's doing he says he doesn't expect God to make decisions for him or master to make decisions for him but it just gets to be a habit he said so that I never make any important decision without at least asking master if he has an opinion <laughs> which I thought was sort of a sweet way to put it instead of saying you know tell me what to do it's like this is what we're going to do shall we go along let's have this and the most interesting thing is once we make this sincere intention and I have to explain to you it's not it's not as romantic an image as uh, romantic is the only word I can think of where there's just sort of the voice of God and the letters of gold and everything stops and the hand comes out and tells you you know to have the apple pie instead of the berry pudding you know it's not like that but there's just what what it really turns out like is you begin to feel like you're flowing with the current if you've ever swum in a river or an ocean where there's a current and you know what it's like when you're pushing against the current and then you know what it's like when you're going with the current what happens when we begin to realize that there is a ray of grace that is always trying to move us then we begin to somehow feel like we're flowing with the current and it's it's a subtlety that grows over many years um, it's and it and we learn it because we try to learn it because we fall in and out of it and you just fall in and out of it but master is pleased God is pleased if we just try and that's all we have to do is just make the resolution you know we, there's and then we begin to think of all kinds of ways in which we can remind ourselves of that res- resolution um, Haridas who's uh, the one of the leaders Nayaswami Haridas who lives in Bangalore now he came to Ananda when he was about 18 um, he was he came quite young and uh, at one point Swami had taken him to Los Angeles with a group of others for some programs that were being done there and we were trying to get some attention from television stations or radio stations and Haridas had a lot of uh, chutzpah and a lot of charm and he went to some television station and he wanted to persuade them to have Swami on one of their programs 
And whoever he was talking to, the producer of the program, said, well, I'm not much interested. I don't know who this Swami Kriyananda is, but you're a very interesting guest. I'd like to have you on the program. So all of a sudden, Haridas has actually gotten himself, you know, to be on this regional Los Angeles television station. He's been on the path about two years. He might have been all of 20 by that point. He calls Swami basically and says, what should I do? When Swamiji tells the story, Swamiji said he himself thought, really, Haridas, you know, like, this is just a boy, what is he going to be able to say? But then Swamiji thought, why not? Of course he can. So Haridas went on the air, and he did not have at that time a very sophisticated understanding of the teachings, but in his heart he knew that he belonged to Master, and he knew Master was real. And they had, he had uh, one of these bangles on, as many of us wear, and uh, it was on his wrist, and so the man could see it. So the uh, interviewer said, you know, what is that? Why are you wearing that? Haridas said his mind just went completely blank. He knew that it was an astrological bangle, but he didn't, he didn't have any idea, you know, how to explain that. He knew on American television it would just sound about as wacky as it could sound. This helps with my horoscope it keeps the negative the influence of the negative planets at bay he didn't think it would make a very good impression he also knew that he was out of his element even trying to talk about it if they asked him one more question he would just be absolutely sunk you know so there was there was no way he could be anything but what he was so he said and i will paraphrase it he says well i you know my guru recommended it i understand it has many subtle effects he said which i believe in he said, but for me, every time I look at it, it reminds me of what I'm doing with my life. How could you give a better answer than that? And the, the answer was, to go back to where I started, completely original. There wasn't anything imitative about that idea. The, the announcer and every, the interviewer and everyone who saw it, it was an absolutely original idea because it sprang right from the sincerity of his own experience. So a tremendous part of our job on the spiritual path is to actually become, well, there's trendy words now like authentic, but to actually be who we really are and to have the confidence in Divine Mother's love that we don't have to be different to be loved. We were talking uh, uh, yesterday or the day before about our educational education for life system, which is something Swami Kriyananda um, expanded on from Master's ideas of educating children. And uh, let me th- see how this, what I was saying with this. You know, the, the fundamental principle of the education for life teaching, which we express in our living wisdom schools for children, is to help children be themselves with confidence. And of course, a lot of times we try to get children to have confidence by, as they say, by giving them a medal just for showing up. You know, just try to say, you're wonderful just the way you are. Swami, when people would talk about, you should love yourself just the way you are, Swami says, well, that's very difficult because so much about ourselves is unlovable. (laughs) He said like that. He said, you don't really want to love yourself just the way you are. He said, but you have to accept who you are because it has to be a starting place for what we're doing. You can't always just 
be at war with yourself. You have to recognize this. But above all, we have to understand that our self-worth is entirely and only because Divine Mother loves us. We were created by God. We're on a divine journey. And sooner or later, we're going to be victorious. You know, if you're looking at someone that you know is going to get the gold medal, you might not be so worried about whether or not their routine is completely worked out yet. If you look at a painting when it's half done, you don't say that's a terrible painting. If you look at a manuscript that's half edited, you don't say that's a terrible book. You say, oh, you know, this is a work in progress. And that's what we have to begin to feel about ourselves. I'm a gold medal winner. It's just that I have a little more training to do on this. But when we were beginning to start our school, which was now, it's like, it's about 20, maybe we're not quite 30 years old. We've been doing it for a long time, which um, Aryavan, who's about to come and be in this, live in this ashram for a while, he was our founding child for our school. <laughs> you know, he went through our whole school and then has gone on to be an Education for Life teacher. So he, he brings a lot to the table on that. But when we were first starting that, we went around to some of the notable private schools in our area and living in the Palo Alto area, in the Silicon Valley area, some of the best private schools in the country are a few miles from where we live because it's just what, that's the kind of area it is. In fact, Swami Kriyananda's comment to us when we started our school was, if you can make this system work in Palo Alto, which is such an intellectual, education-oriented place, we are almost literally across the street from Stanford, he said, we can prove that it'll work anywhere. And we are doing that. Um, the, the, the private high schools in the area, we've, we've started a high school, but just started it. Private high schools in the area always want to have our students because they know that they bring something unique and positive to their student body. Um, but when I was looking around and we were just you know, trying to think, how, how do other schools train not just intellect but people? And one of, the, one of the schools that we went to, which was one of the most famous and most expensive and most impressive, the things about these schools, and I don't know how it works here, but they, you know, they, they only take the students who are the most privileged and the most intellectually gifted and then they tell you how well all their students do, <laughs> you know. But gosh, those students would do well no matter where you put them. So it, or the whole thing is just completely screwy, but that's beside the point. But now everybody knows that you should teach self-esteem and self-worth and all these sorts of things. So I went to the school and they had a display in the hallway. This was an elementary level school that would be kindergarten through eighth grade. And they had a, the tree of self-esteem because they were all they had self-esteem classes, and every child about, about 10 years or 11 years old had stuck a leaf on the tree of self-esteem. It was this public thing, and each child was saying why he was worthy. They were like, I, I'll use a number, like 29 leaves on the tree. 28 of them were about something that that child had accomplished externally. I'm captain of the soccer team. You know, I'm, I have the lead in the school play. I got a perfect score on my math test the kind of things those children would have. One child said, I'm not as moody as I used to be. Every other child was what they had accomplished externally, and that was how they thought they were worthy. 
What happens when they hit their first failure? What happens when the economy collapses and they're cut from their company? What happens if they have a, a, a brain aneurysm and they don't have the same capacity to go forward? It was far from being encouraging. It was absolutely heartbreaking. It's like, this is not who we are and this is not where happiness comes from. But all of us, you see, have been brought up in the same sea of delusion. And what we accidentally do is we pace that delusion on our spiritual lives. And we worry that I don't do my kriyas right. I, we worry that I don't meditate enough. We worry that I, I, read, uh, I watch too many movies. We worry that I'm too ambitious in my work. We are loved by God. There's a saint, French saint, Swami was fond of quoting, if you knew how much God loves you, you would die for joy. I mean, really, that is such an interesting thing to contemplate. It's such an interesting thing to posit against all of this insecurity. This insecurity is because we've identified with something that is terribly insecure. And, and naturally, when we know that our self-worth depends on being the captain of the soccer team, we're nervous all the time. But when we finally realize if I act from my point of origin, I am exactly who I am meant to be. And weirdly, we also become very good at what we do at that point. Because we're, we're standing in our real power. You know, this is what our spiritual path is all about. This is what we are. We are there is a special ray of grace available to everyone. Not exclusively for disciples, but especially for disciples. There's a special ray of grace these masters live even now just to help us, period. Someone was saying to me, I don't want to bother master. And I, I laughed because that people will say that to me. I, know, I, I don't mean to call you. I, I don't want to ask for an appointment because I know you're so busy. I said, look, if no one called me and no one asked for an appointment, I wouldn't be busy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that if everybody was so considerate of my time, I would have nothing to do. I mean, I know it just from my own life. This is what I do. It's not an imposition. And, oh, infinitely more than this. And also you're dealing with infinity here. You know, we have this idea of limited. This is Sister Gyanamata. She, she wrote to Master. She was his most advanced woman disciple. She wrote, uh, I know, sir, that you were sent by the Himalayan Masters, that you have a great mission for the world, that your work is going to change, you know, and so on and so on. She said, but I like to think you came to America just for me. <laughs> and that pleases Master. And, and that's how you should feel. You should feel that Babaji has kept his body in the Himalayas just for you. <laughs> and he has. And when you call on him like that, he's just so happy to respond. He says, oh, my child, you have understood. You know, that's what God wants from us to understand. The, the subject of the subconscious mind and how to know when you're in the flow of God is actually the same question. Because we talk about inner guidance. And going back, actually, as it happens to that young man who wanted to write his own music, he, he made this assertion, he said, because he could see that Swami was reluctant to endorse his course of action. Swami was also reluctant Swamiji's principle when he worked with us was 
above all to what he would what he what would I called preserve the relationship to keep the friendship intact. Um, in the Bible, Jesus says at the end of his life, none of the sheep were lost. I was the shepherd of the flock, and none of the sheep were lost except the one who chose to be lost. And he was speaking about Judas, the one who had betrayed him. But the idea that the, the avatar has a responsibility, that the saint has responsibility for certain souls, and his above all, he needs to <clears throat> maintain the connection with them so that even if they sail off into delusion for a while, they won't lose the, the thought that, that this man is my friend. Of course, sometimes even that is lost. In Master's life, one of his disciples went away from him and, and turned against him. And every year, Master sent that disciple a case of mangoes, this story is told. And every year, that disciple sent them back. He wouldn't even open the carton. He wouldn't accept them. Master said, he'll never find God except through this instrument, meaning that he must reconcile with me. That's essential. And Master also said about that disciple that in three lifetimes he would be liberated, that the aberration of turning against Master would quickly, relatively speaking, be overcome and he would come back to his former high state of spiritual realization. So coming back to Swamiji, I watched over the years that he would rarely really confront someone who was determined on a wrong course of action if Swamiji felt that the most important thing was to maintain the friendship. And he would simply allow the person to make the mistake because that's all it would be. You know, the, the, and, here, and here's where I want to come also to this. God wants us to be in tune with him. He wants us to feel the joy. He wants us to, to know that we're loved. Certain circumstances in our life make it easier for us to feel that. That doesn't necessarily mean that those circumstances are the lightest and the most pleasant or the most positive in the eyes of the world. They're just for who we are. They make it, we were able to feel God's presence stronger. There's a remarkable book called Left to Tell, and it's a book about a survivor of the Rwanda massacre. And for a period of, I don't know if it was months or weeks, I no longer remember, she was hidden in a bathroom with six or seven other people. And they were, the, it was just the bathroom, they could hear people outside the wall looking for them to kill them. And they were inside this room, and this man was risking his life to take care of them. She spent almost all the hours, all her waking, <clears throat> she spent almost all her waking hours during that incredible ordeal reading the Bible, and she was in an almost constant state of nearly ecstatic attunement with God which was unprecedented for her. She was a spiritual person and completely redirected her life. So the situation seemed horrific, but the circumstances allowed her to attune to God in a way that nothing else would have done. So you, on a certain level, again, as I've often said in this room, is it good or is it bad? Okay. So what God wants from us is he wants us to feel his presence because 
when we feel the presence of the divine, we are who we're meant to be. We're living at our point of origin and we're happy. I said the other night in here, even Swami said, even when masters scolded them sternly, they always felt encouraged. He said, when you feel discouraged, that's when Satan has a grip on you. So a mistake from the point of view of the divine is simply to put yourself in a circumstance where it might be harder to feel God's presence instead of putting yourself in the circumstance where it might flow more easily for you. That's the only difference. It's that this might be easier for you and this might be harder for you, but that hard and easy can be reversed in a second just by our turning. So there's we have this incredible either-or anxiety that one path is doom and the other path is bliss, where it's just simply not true at all. It's just some things will make it easier, some things won't. And many things don't matter at all because whether or not we feel attunement and upliftment from God is entirely what we're doing in the midst of those circumstances. When I was making a significant decision in my life and I wasn't sure about what I was doing, I said to Swamiji, is this a good or a bad thing that I'm thinking of doing? He said, Asha, it's just a thing. He said, it will either be good or bad entirely depending on what you do. This decision will not determine it. It's everything you do from this point forward. So it's very hard to answer the question, is this God's will or is this selfish? Am I flowing with grace or am I not? The question is, are you? Are you being selfish or are you just doing the best that you can? Are you trying your best to involve God in your life? And even if many times we forget, I'm still being as sincere and as good as I can be in it. See, we're always creating this tyrannical image of the divine, which is the worst, the worst thing we can do. We're trying, we're, we're always trying to separate ourselves from God by our own actions. Or, or what I mean by that is we're trying to say that our actions will separate us from God. That is simply not true. It's impossible. And even if we do incredibly stupid things one after another, whether we're separated from God because we do that is entirely with what we do afterwards. Yesterday or the day before, I was talking about my drug addict friend, my former drug addict friend. He was behaving about as badly, and I haven't given you the whole of his story. He was behaving about as badly from the point of view of right action, uplifted action, as you could possibly imagine. But he never allowed it to separate him from God. And God was very pleased. Swamiji said to us once, God is pleased when you bring us, bring him your successes. He said, but he's more pleased when you bring him your failures. And I've really meditated on that a long time. And I really thought, well, you know, when everything goes well, we stand in the light and we're proud of ourselves and we carry our gold medals and we take it to the temple and we lay it on the altar. And, you know, it's like, it, that's easy to do. But when we've done something that we're deeply ashamed of, which, welcome to the human race, we've done something that we're deeply ashamed of, we don't want anyone to know. So when we have the confidence in God's love sufficiently to be able to say, this is what I've done, and know that it will not cause the divine love to diminish one iota, that's a, that is a real victory. Because then we have changed our entire self-definition. 
that I am a child of God. I don't have to be the captain of the soccer team to be okay. I just am what I am. And if I'm a mess, then my poor mother just has to help me all the more. There's a master has that poem, uh, I will return again and again, uh, a trillion times if necessary, um, with bleeding feet, crossing crags of suffering. I mean, it's, whoa, he really just pours it out so that you have the picture of the Guru's dedication. And he will do that again and again, a trillion times if necessary, as long as one stray brother is left behind. Now that poem is not about, I will come and save the world, I will come and change the planet, I will come and initiate Dwapara Yuga. One disciple. And you have to believe him. See, that's another part of it. We have to believe that that kind of goodness exists. See, part of our problem is that we literally can't imagine that level. That's why if we knew how much God loves us, we would die for joy. We can't imagine it. um, Because I knew Swami Kriyananda well, I can imagine it. I know it. In fact, when some woman came to me once and told me that she, she had a very serious problem of not feeling worthy, we actually, she developed a mantra. She was one of those who had to be the captain of the soccer team and get perfect scores to be okay. So she was always feeling herself to be unsuitable and therefore she believed God didn't love her. So we made a mantra for her which she actually enjoyed saying, I am perfectly adequate, is what she would say. <laughs> and it really became, Every time she began to feel nervous, she'd say, I am perfectly adequate. <laughs> and it was just her way of saying, you know, this is just my imposition. And I, I tried to help her with God loves her. Uh, but afterwards I reflected on it and I thought, I'm terribly insecure on many levels. I was then. But I don't doubt that God loves me. And I realized it was because I know that Swami does. And it was just that I'd had the experience. And I know that's not always transferable, but it is transferable because you can feel it. That's why Swami told us, Master said to him, I give you my unconditional love, so that we know it's there. So the whole question of whether I'm doing the right or the wrong thing, in many ways, is the wrong question. And we can agonize that question over and over and over again. And it's, it's just, you'll never be satisfied. Because the mere torturing ourselves with that question is a determination to be uncertain and to suffer. If the question is, will God love me no matter what I do? You have to be able to answer an emphatic yes. Is it possible to realize God, whether this is a smart or a dumb idea? Yes. Is it possible for me to separate myself from God by any action? No. And if this is a mistake, what will happen? Well, I'll just have to correct it, won't I? And if I don't correct it in this life, I'll correct it in the next one. It's like, welcome to the human race. But the magnitude of it is only how we hold it just exactly how we hold it. A woman friend of mine who, well, she was, she was one of the many souls who passed away from Ananda, and she had had, her problem had been she'd had a terrible alcohol addiction, and as a result, she, didn't, she wasn't able to raise, she had three different children, she wasn't able to raise them herself. She just made a mess of everything. She was a very sincere devotee. The alcohol just blew her off for about 25 years after she made a mess of everything she came back she lived with us for 
five or six more years, then got very ill and died. Died beautifully. But the most extraordinary thing about her was she was able to reconcile with, I think, one of her three children. One of them continued to reject her, and one of them she could never find. But she was completely at peace with it. I mean, it was extraordinary because you could hardly imagine a story more fraught with, I'm going to die in a state of anguish and regret. But she felt Divine Mother's unconditional love for her. And in all of that, she thought, I never intended to hurt anyone, I did the best I can. And so what we have to look to is the intention of our heart. And yes, of course, we have small-minded desires. We have to be realistic. I mean, sometimes I choose myself because I'm not capable of not choosing myself. It's just who I am. You know, Swami sometimes says, I, I was in a situation once, very difficult karma with someone, and uh, circumstances separated us. Forgive me if I've already said this, but circumstances separated us. And uh, I, just, I just didn't know what to think about it because it was still roiling inside of me, but it looked like it was going away. So, gosh, could I be lucky enough to have this just go away? So Swami said to me, I asked him, what do I do? He said, first he said, well, maybe the karma is finished, like that. And I was just like, wow, zowie, it's done. And then he said, but I don't think so. (laughs) so. He let me have it for a few seconds before he said that. But I don't think so. He said, but you, both of you, have done as much as you can right now. And now it just gets put aside. It'll just get put aside. He said, you'll both grow in different ways. And then you'll pick it up later. Either you'll pick it up with each other or you'll pick it up with the equivalent, whatever. Maybe you'll conquer all the inner qualities that cause the karma and you won't ever have to see the circumstances. Maybe you will. But that's once again, was I selfish? Was I choosing God's will? I just did what I had to do. And many times in my life I've had to say, God, I don't know if this is your will. I don't even know if this is a good idea. But this is the only choice I actually have. Because I I don't have the capacity to do anything else. I'm finished. I'm exhausted. I'm angry. I'm worn out. I don't have any more creativity. I have to stop whatever I'm talking about. So I'm going to make this choice because there is no other one. And I hope you don't mind. (laughs) And, you know, God is no tyrant, you see. And he knows our heart better than we do. Now, the question that you asked about subconscious is also part of this because... We are, you know, the the pronoun I covers many different vibrations. And the the pronoun I is all of us. I mean, in we have a course called the Superconscious Living Course. Um, I don't we don't have I don't think there's actually a book on it. There's recordings on it. I have recordings somewhere on it, and you can find it in other places. And it's a very it's a very brilliant course that Swami created about nineteen seventy nine among the many things that he created that he was just creating so fast they kind of went past us. So it doesn't get taught as an entity as much as it deserves to be. But he he talks in there very simply, there's three levels of consciousness, which we we have in our meditation classes and everything. Subconscious, conscious, superconscious. And subconscious is not just, it's not like the Jungian sort of shared collective unconscious. It's simply the repository of, of everything we've already been and done. 
and in our, our context that means all our past lives. It, but what we really think of it, it's everything we've already been and done. Everything that's behind us. I mean, what you did yesterday, the dream you had last night, it's all stored in the subconscious. Nothing is forgotten, which is why at our past, at the end of our life, our afterlife review, we get to see it all. It's all right there. And past life um, regression or past life memories, it's just all there. It's because it's all stored in that vibration of consciousness, which is everything we've done up to this minute to make us who we are. There's a natural familiarity with all of that because it's us. We've been doing it. The conscious level is where we have, and it, but it's a, it's a unique, it's a uniquely isolated state of consciousness, because it's the collection of our unique experiences. And even if other people were there, um, what we remember and what we hold is based on our um, capacity to perceive our being the center of spirit and everything emanating from us, ego and divine. Um, I mean, there was one more thought. Oh, for example, if you're asleep, even if you're sleeping in the same bed with someone and you have a subconscious dream, almost all dreams are subconscious, meaning they're a collection of what you already know reassembled in some interesting way that sometimes may communicate to you something wiser than you already know. Superconscious dreams have a different quality. But you can have subconscious dreams. I could... You know, you could be in Thailand, you could be on the beach, you know, in the way of dreams, then suddenly you could be in San Francisco and you can be seeing your wife or your children and so on. And even if someone's sleeping right next to you, they won't be doing any of that with you. Even if they're in your dream, they won't, they won't be in your dream. Because your subconscious world is completely self-contained. Many people live quite subconsciously even when they're awake. Because... They perceive everything according to their bias. And so they perceive you according to the fact that you remind them of their sister who was always mean to them and then they act as if you're mean or they, they relate to you according to the lifetime 700 years ago when you did X, Y, and Z to them. Or they imagine that people are against them. You know, just lots of things where we take a completely private reality and project it onto the world around us. And it's very difficult to relate to people who insist that their subconscious world is the real world because it's not a shared reality. And, and we're all, to a large extent, influenced by our subconscious. And the great art of spiritual realization is to come into uh, what actually is, not merely what we project. So the conscious level is where we have a shared reality. All of us are in here together. If we walk out and start comparing notes, we will be able to tell that we were all in the same place. But I know from experience that what different ones of you think I've said here will vary greatly. (laughs) You know, you'll either hear certain parts, you'll interpret certain parts, remember certain parts. So even though there's a large level of shared reality, we're still subjectively influenced, really largely because of our subconscious conditioning that inclines us to hear certain things. Just like my drug addict friend says, of all the things that Master said, the one I liked the most was, if you're going to do it anyway, take me with you. And so he really liked that one because it worked for him. His subconscious need caused him to absorb that. So the superconscious is our future. 
the superconscious is our potential. The future conscious is where we are going. The future, con- the superconscious is our connecting link to infinity. Right. So superconscious is what we're always trying to work with. It's it's how the divine talks to us. It's the vibration from which higher consciousness can come. Which is why not everything that we think of. Well, maybe I'll go there in just a moment. Um, but in order to get to the superconscious, we have to raise our energy level, we have to calm our minds, we have to separate ourselves from our subconscious, which is not a, a bright line in the sand. It's a directional movement of energy. We, there's no way that we can kind of just say, this is subconscious, this is superconscious. In fact, what we're really working with is two warring fields. Like the superconscious is always trying to lift us into a higher reality. The subconscious is always saying, oh, we're comfortable the way we are. Why don't we just stick with what we already know? Why don't we just stay as we are? The superconscious is always saying, put out more energy, become more aware, be more dynamic, be courageous, take chances. The subconscious mind says, oh, let's just be comfortable. We've been like this for such a long time. Why should we put out so much energy to change? You know, this is my... You know, I'm just one. When I, I'll just go into my house and I'll sleep under my same blankie and I'll have my little pillow. And this is like I don't really want to meditate. I need to sleep. I mean, that's just sort of the way, the way it works. Now, the subconscious and the superconscious are equally. Are, oh, I was starting to say, it's just it's the conscious level doesn't really exist. The conscious level is actually the the battle of Kurukshetra, in which everything that we've been tries to keep us there. And everything that we could become tries to lure us upward. And, and that's what we're always doing. We're always just trying to, uh, to negotiate the, the conflict between us. It's also the chakras. I mean, there's many images. But, you know, the Mahabharata, that's what it is. This is who I've always been. Karna represents happiness in this world. I just want, to, I want it my way. Even if I put out energy, I want it my way. And God says, no, I think we want it in a higher way. Now the thing is, all of this is us. So when we talk about inner guidance, or, or especially just if we use the phrase inner guidance, we have many different voices. And so this, 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 you know, as it happens, this same man who wanted to leave and write his own music, he argued with Swamiji by saying, but it feels so right to me to do this. And it was interesting because I, I can't remember clearly whether I was in the room when the conversation took place or Swami just repeated it to me, but I feel like I was in the room. But I said to Swamiji later, maybe I just talked to the man separately. I said, Swamiji, my feeling is that it does, what he's talking about does feel really right to him because he's closed down all input and he's now just made a circle of his own point of view so nothing contradicts it. And he just feels, it. he feels like it's really in tune. And in a certain way, it is his inner voice. So it isn't just a question of inner voice, it's what level does that voice come from? Which part of me is speaking? And guidance actually is progressive. Because if you don't know yourself at all, which <clears throat> I, I naturally meet lots of people who don't know their own thoughts, they don't know their own feelings, they don't know where their pain is coming from. 
They don't know why they feel certain ways. They've been habitually compelled by outside forces and haven't yet developed even a subconscious awareness, meaning I don't even know who I am now, what to speak of who I'm trying to become. You know, I, my own upbringing, everybody's upbringing, influenced me in certain ways, gave me all these self-concepts that I just didn't even know had been imposed on me. I think I've joked with you all before, my brother um, was a brilliant, articulate man, is, and uh, we lived in the state of Texas in the United States, which is one of the biggest states in Texas. My brother and his partner were the, were the debate champions of the entire state of Texas twice. I mean, you know, and he was my older brother, and he set the tone in the household a lot. My family dynamic was that we debated. We didn't argue. It wasn't argument. It was debate. And, de- and debate is a way of communicating, where you have all your arguments, all your points of view, all your facts. You put them out. You put them out with as much strength as you can. Then you wait. And then the next person... He analyzes your arguments and then talks about what's right and what's wrong about them and puts out theirs. Then you wait. Then you get your turn and you do it again. Nothing, no animosity. But I found, I, I, I only learned, like, I think I actually was 50 when I learned that debate and conversation are not the same thing. And I just thought debate was conversation and I couldn't understand why so many people didn't enjoy talking to me. <laughs> because I just thought I would put out my arguments and then they would put out theirs. I didn't, didn't even occur to me that, that people feel assaulted when you do that sort of thing rather than encouraged. But I didn't even know. Because it was just the way I was raised. Now, I mean, I'm exaggerating slightly for the sake of making the point. But it was astonishing to me when I finally got that. And I was a full-grown, 25 years on the path person before the full implications of that. So it's very important that we understand our subconscious mind, even though our subconscious self, and I don't mean, I'm not talking about deep psychoanalysis or anything, but just to know who we are and why we're doing what we're doing. <clears throat> and sometimes you have to just follow your inner guidance, no matter where it comes from, just so that you can get in the habit of responding from something that relates to who you actually are, rather than just responding according to what your family or society or your own expectations have imposed on you. Because you can't build if you have no foundation, right? You, you just can't build if you have no foundation. So you have to build it first. The, the phrase that's very worth knowing is you have to know where your pain is coming from. There was a very unfortunate, very short marriage in our community where neither the man nor the woman had the foggiest idea where their pain was coming from. And so when they had their brief period of time trying to live happily with each other, every time he would say something, she would suffer. And she, because she would suffer sequentially after his comment, she thought he was saying something that hurt her. She would say something back to him, and then he would suffer sequentially after her comment, chronologically. He would think that she had hurt him, but they were not. It had nothing to do with it. It was both of them had this, uh, you know, I don't know what the word is, this huge underground lake of, of unresolved pain. And so they kept thinking it was each other. It had nothing to do with each other. So we have to know. But the only way we find out 
is by experience, by trying, by going forward, by seeing the consequences, by understanding, you know, what works and what doesn't, by listening when other people tell you that what we're saying is completely nuts, you know? Our tendency is to defend our delusions than to say, wow, is that how it seems to you? You know, we should be very interested. Not everybody is right, because they could also be throwing their subconscious at you. But at least we should be interested. I mean, this is the most common sense introspection way to work with our, with our subconscious. The other more dynamic way is that we simply clear that, that subconsciousness. And we clear it with affirmations, we clear it with meditation, we clear it with chanting... Because the subconscious is just a collection of what we've already done. (laughs) So if we start feeding the subconscious more positive attitudes, more positive experiences, you see, this is again why you've heard me plead all morning, God loves you. Why would we think he doesn't? Because our subconscious mind has persuaded us that he doesn't. So when every time we allow that thought, so it's not just a question of, Uh, it's not a good idea now, it's every time we allow that thought, we just store one more, we give one more ounce of energy to that orientation. And that's why our thoughts are extremely important. Because every time we allow ourselves to worry whether we're doing God's will, to worry whether we're in the stream of divine consciousness, to worry that God doesn't love us, to worry that we have failed... We're building up a subconscious orientation that's always nervous. And then on the battleground, it'll just keep coming at us. And thus the whole teaching of positive thinking, of affirmation, of giving our problems to God, of taking to God our failures fearlessly, is how we begin to create a different orientation. When I came to the path and started living at Ananda just before I was 24, I was oriented toward, uh, I just was oriented, I was, I was, my enemy wasn't my friend. My, my subconscious wasn't my friend. It just, it was a little bit of a saboteur. And so it was always, instead of making me feel confident, it was always giving me reasons why maybe I couldn't really do it. And I worked hard, I listened, I studied the teachings, I practiced the techniques, I did Kriya, I chanted, I lived in a positive way, I was serviceful, you know, I did all the things I was supposed to do. Twelve years later, and I don't mean to discourage you, but it was twelve years later, on my 36th birthday, I felt like I had been, my subconscious had been slightly oriented not to be my friend, like that, and it went like that. I mean, nothing more dramatic than that, but when... I thought of it like this way. When I put the marble of my consciousness on it, it had always rolled toward insecurity. And then when I put the marble there, all of a sudden, it rolled toward... Now, it didn't roll to toward, you're terrific. It rolled toward, you're not that bad. <laughs> but really, between you're a dead loss and I'm perfectly adequate, was like a universe of change. And it was simply that I'd spent a long time building up one self-concept and I dedicated myself to building up another one. And what happens is when you orient yourself toward truth, you're swimming with the current. And this is where God's grace comes in. So it's not really just mechanics. 
it's like you've opened the window. You've, you've started running the Kriya current through it. You're living more at the spiritual eye. You're asking the masters to help you. Then the details of am I doing the right thing and the wrong thing, the actual enemy is am I doing the right thing or the wrong thing. The enemy is not the thing. The enemy is the subconscious conviction that I, I'm inadequate, I'm going to make a mistake, and God's going to punish me. That's the enemy. We don't even, even know what the test is sometimes. I have this belief, this is, and I'm always, I always want to make it very clear, this is the gospel according to Asha. There is no truth to this except that I think it's charming. Okay? <laughs> because I worked so hard in my life to become perfect. Actually, it was more weird than that. It was that I thought I was, how, how do you say it? I thought that there was another one of me. I thought there was another one of me that was actually perfect. And for some reason, this one had gotten dominance, but if we could just beat this one up enough and get it to move aside, the perfect one would pop out of the closet and everything would be settled. That's a crazy, whole crazy way of thinking, but that's more or less what I was thinking. One horrible day, I realized that this was the only one there was. <laughs> you know, and that perfect one really had never existed that what you see is what you get that was like a real it was both liberating and really uh, awful first it was awful and then it was liberating because I realized no amount of uh, you know, self-flagellation was ever going to get her to go away and get that one to come because there was no that one and then I suddenly realized that that very thought was the enemy. That what I was was perfectly adequate, but the thought that it wasn't was the enemy. So you begin to fight the right battle. So this is the question, how do you transform the subconscious? You fight the right battle. You, you, you build within yourself. Master had this wonderful phrase. He said, if you know that a test is too big for you, he said, run away. Isn't that interesting? If it's more than you can handle, run away. And so sometimes we make decisions like, you know, this isn't the most noble, the most generous, the most self-sacrificing, the most unselfish way to do, but you know what? It's the only one I can do. Because, he said, the worst thing is for you to continually fail and then develop the self-concept of being a failure. He said, that's far worse. He said, run away so that you don't have to continually fail. So you have a karma that's too hard. You just walk away from it because you know you can't handle it because it'll come back to you. You really won't get away with it. But as Swami said to me in, in a very similar circumstance, you just develop yourself in other ways. And then when you're stronger, it'll come back to you. But, but the important point of what he said there is it's more important to avoid the fight than to constantly get the image in your mind that you can't handle it. Because then every time something happens, it tips this way. And that's your enemy. See, it's a very different, it's a very different game than we think. Oh, and so what I was starting, the gospel according to Asha, is that we actually never really get any better. That we're just as selfish and crummy and inadequate and incapable, all the way to God realization. It's, but we don't really care <laughs> that this is my limited, egoic, flawed subconsciously, you know, complicated mess. But what way most people live is it's their only reality. 
So who am I is, is as big as that picture. And what happens when we grow spiritually, this is, again, this is the gospel according to Asha, is it never gets any different. It just becomes such a small part of our self-definition that when it does its little thing, we don't obsess about it anymore. It's just like, oh yeah, there it is, messing up again. You know, there it is, what did I expect? Of course it's messing up. When my friend was so depressed, like two weeks after she'd made a terrible mistake, Swami scolded her, not for the mistake she'd made, but as he put it, for being so egoic as to be so shocked that you could make a mistake that two weeks later you're still thinking about it. He said, of course you made a mistake, what's the big deal? Just put it behind you and go on. Don't build up the subconscious idea that you can't do it. Because you can, because you're a child of God. And maybe you're designed to be the worst of Master's children. That's where I'm going to come back to Master crossing a thousand crags of suffering a trillion times if necessary for one disciple. I have seriously considered that I'm that disciple. And I don't know if I am or not because I don't, it's as much ego to say you're the worst as to say you're the best because really what we really don't want to be is just in the forgotten, you know, mediocre middle. But maybe I am. Really, maybe I am. Maybe in the list of all of Master's disciples, my name is the last one on the list. But I just say to myself, it's on the list. (laughs) And that's how you reprogram your subconscious mind. You don't let it take your peace away from you. You argue with it, you fight with it. You say, yeah, you're actually, I'm terrible at everything I do. That doesn't matter, I'm a, I have a God-realized master. I, there's a special ray of grace. I'm divine mother's child. Naughty or good, you know, you're not going to be able to get rid of me. Master says, be divine mother's naughty baby. When she puts you down, just begin to scream until she comes and picks you up again. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful image? Yeah, and that's who we are. All right, dear ones, God bless you.